They have a combined 12 years in the National Football League. They combined for 65 career sacks, 232 tackles, one Pro Bowl selection, and one Employee of the Month award. That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. It's Train and Gross on the All-AZ Podcast Network. Welcome in episode 69, Train and Gross, B-Train, Bertram Barry, Mike Gross, and Sean Crespin. Thanks for tuning in. We are officially post-tax season. We're the day after the tax filing deadline. You get your taxes done, B-Train? Yes, they are done, my friend. Done, and, uh, you know, I owed, so I'm, I'm not too happy about that. I, uh, every year I wait till the last minute and uh, got mine done just in the nick of time. And uh, I, I broke even between the state and the feds. Mm. I broke even. I owed one, got a refund from the other. So I call that good. That is good. And this is episode yeah. 69? Episode 69. Wow. We got the list. And some of these guys I know you know. One of them was mm-hmm. a former teammate of yours. So I'm going to throw, before you react, I'm just going to go right down the list. I've got five names that wore the number 69. Jared Allen, Keith Sims, John Runyon, okay. Jordan Gross, okay. and Mark Schlereth. Wow. That's a good Stink. list. Stink. Stink. I forgot Stink wore 69. Yeah, that's a great list, man. And, you know, of course, 69 was a very good year. <laughs> Absolutely. So Stink was, your, Stink was your teammate. Did you ever play against him, though? No. I didn't have the pleasure. I uh, I missed him, but you know he's the reason that I actually do this right now, Mike. Because yeah, I remember that. If it's not for him in Denver giving me a chance, I I would have never really gotten serious about doing radio. So big shout Here out to are. Mark Slarett for absolutely for reaching out with that olive branch. And uh, you played against Jordan Gross, of course, of the Carolina Panthers. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Good man. Uh, very good left tackle and uh, was a pain in my side for a lot of years, but uh, definitely a lot of respect to him and, and big shout out to him. He lost a lot of weight, Mike, after playing. He's one of those classic guys that once his career was over, he lost like almost like 100 pounds and, and he, he looks like half the man that he used to be. So uh, good for him to have, have lost that weight and, and living a healthy, fit life in his retirement days. How about John Runyon? How many times did you go up against him? John and I got, well, you know, of course, we infamously went up against each other in the NFC Championship game. And uh, he was a a big, strong guy. I think we even got it on at Michigan back in college. So uh, he was a a big, big man. He was strong and uh, definitely a a competitor. Uh, You know, he had a little bit of, extracurricular to him, you know what I mean? But uh, to me, a good lineman had a little bit of that. And, and yeah. you knew that going in, and you 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 kept your head on a swivel accordingly. So big shout-out to John Runyon. And uh, I believe he has a son that's actually doing big things now, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Keith Sims was just – he was wrapping it up when you started. He, there, there was only a year or two maybe that you guys overlapped. Uh, he finished up with the Redskins in 2000. Yeah, I think we got it on in 99 when I was in Indianapolis 
Uh, we played the Redskins back in 99 when they had that, that, uh, that all geriatric team. <laughs> with uh, Deion Sanders and Bruce Smith and all those guys, Mark Carrier was a was a safety on that squad. And man, they 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 really tried to buy themselves a, a contender, and and unfortunately, it didn't quite work out for them like that. And then the first name that I gave out was Jared Allen, and um, you know, I, I obviously remember him for me most most with the Vikings, but you know he he played with uh, four teams, but. The Chiefs. I met him one 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 weekend. He was in town promoting his charity. Uh, he helped the wounded veterans, um, and he came out. Manuch and I were doing a radio show someplace. I can't remember where it was. And they said, "Hey, you're going to have Jared Allen on the show, and you're going to talk about you know he's in town raising some money for his charity." And the next thing we know, Jared Allen rolls into this uh, wherever we were, sports bar wherever, and he hung out with us for about a half an hour. And just the nicest wow. guy in the world, talked about his charity. Uh, we had to go to break, and he wanted to keep talking. You know how it is to do radio. And um, yeah. nicest guy in the world, though. And I just remember how long his arms were. Like, he introduced himself to, to, to shook hands, and he reached across. <laughs> I was like, well, he's going to have to take a couple more steps to get here. Nah, he, he his big hand got me uh, you know, two steps further back than I thought he would be. Yeah, just a just a good old country boy, and 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 strong as an ox. He was wiry, strong, Mike. He was a guy that was yeah. very productive. He could get around that corner. I believe he's well over like 130 sacks in his career, something incredible, and and uh, just a just a beast. I remember playing against him when he was in Kansas City, and he was just kind of starting out. He wasn't really a a, a full time starter yet, and and I just remember our guys just couldn't block him. He was just unblockable, and. Uh, he continued that sh- that all the way throughout his career, and uh, much respect to Jared Allen for sure. Yeah, and he country boy. He had on a, he had a cowboy hat on coming out to see him in Nuge. And then last thing before we wrap this up on bookends on this list, Stink played his college football at the University of Idaho, and uh-huh. Jared Allen, of course, was a product of Idaho State University. So there you go. Shout out to football in the Potato State on the podcast tonight. And shout out to both of them wearing that number, man. I mean, you know, they they both took it and and ran with it, literally. And, uh, you know, you just have to tip your hat to those men because all of those men that you put out there uh, made their mark in the league in their own fashion. Yeah, absolutely. All right, NBA playoffs front and center. The Phoenix Suns, uh, they rolled the uh, New Orleans Pelicans in the opening game of that series. Uh, They've got game two about an hour from right now, meaning an hour from when we uh, started recording this podcast. And, you know, look, this is a 1-8 matchup, of course. Um, but I think that, you know, New Orleans for most of that game on Sunday evening against the uh, Suns, they were showing a little bit of the effect of the hangover, whatever you want to call it, uh, going into L.A. to beat the Clippers. Uh, it was a tight game. And uh, the Pelicans came away with a win. And, again, I'll say again what I said uh, a moment ago. Uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, in our last podcast, excuse me. Shout out to Willie Green because this is a team mm. that – They've got some players, but this is not the most talented bunch that's ever uh, rolled out uh, into the NBA playoffs. And for him to get them into the play-in, win two games in the play-in, and advance to the to the postseason to play the Suns, I think that's a huge accomplishment, particularly without their superstar, Zion Williamson. I think they're a year ahead of schedule, Mike, and that just shows how he was able to galvanize this team and get them to believe in the system. It's not always about having all of your stars. If you can get a, a group of talented guys to buy into what you're selling and have them go out and execute, 
then you have an absolute shot. And I think for them, they were able to maximize it. And I don't know what the future holds for Zion Williamson. I don't know if he's going to ever play in a New Orleans Pelicans jersey again. But I think him watching what these young guys have done without him, that has to, at some point, play in the back of his mind. Like, man, what if I was out there helping these guys? Where would we be right now? Would we have even had to play in the play-in? Would we have been a higher seed? And so uh, it it can go a a bunch of different ways. You you just don't know. But I hope that he's able to bury the hatchet, if you will, whatever disagreement – that he may have with the with the organization and and go out there and 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 represent that 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 or that that state of Louisiana and 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 play as hard as he possibly can because uh, so far in his career has been injury prone but man they just looked overmatched the other night against the Phoenix Suns and I think Phoenix is going to do what we all expect them to do which is take care of their business rarely, fairly quickly and move on to the next round. Yeah, this is a Sunday to Sunday series. I, I I don't see any way that the the, the, the Pelicans, uh, based on what we saw opening uh, opening night of the series, uh, get a fifth game from the Suns. Meanwhile, just uh, taking a quick look around the rest of the playoffs. I, I said this a year ago, and and I'm going to stick to it. Michael Malone, the head coach of the Nuggets, man, remember at the end of the series here, or towards the latter part of the series here against the Suns, you know, him calling his, his team out uh, in a in a pretty questionable way. Um, and then, you know, you look at the other night, um, you know, players getting objected, players fighting on the sidelines. I look at this and contrast that with what Monty Williams does here in terms of how this is a, this is a system. This is a well-oiled machine. The Nuggets, man, Nuggets got some issues. You can... They just, yeah. Go ahead. They just, they just, they just seem to be undisciplined, Mike. I don't know why they don't play better for coach Malone because I think he's a hell of a coach. I think he's done a great job with the talent that he's had available. And, and of course you're not, you don't have Jamal Murray. You don't have Michael Porter jr. Uh, for the majority of the, of the season. And here you are with a superstar with the reigning MVP and Nikolai Jokic. I, I don't, I don't know how he's able to do more, but clearly this is a flawed team and they do not match up well with the Golden State Warriors. I think it was possibly the worst matchup they could have gotten in the first series uh, as far as, as styles and, and, and how they play and how they want to play. And, and Golden State right now is, is literally running circles around them, and they have no answers for that small lineup. And, and Steph Curry coming off the bench, that, that's really cheating. Come on now. <laughs> well, and Sean asked a good question. Are, are, are the Warriors back? Or are the Nuggets just giving them a shot of confidence that the rest of the uh, the Western Conference doesn't want to see right now? Because, you know, you look at it and like you said, Steph coming off the bench and, you know, what the way the Warriors finished up the regular season, you know, I, I wouldn't have given them much more of a much of a chance in the postseason. But the, the Nuggets making them look look like world beaters right now. Yeah, they are. And, and I just think for this Nuggets team, there's not a lot of defense. They, they, there's not a lot of guys that can really check anybody on Golden State because even Golden State and their motion offense, the fact that they're constantly in motion, I just think at right. some point the Nuggets, after the first quarter, they just get they just get discouraged. They're like, man, we, we, we can't we can't stay in front of these guys. And they're they're, they're doing layup drills basically throughout the course of the game and, and all that movement is wearing them out. Now, I will be interested to see, Mike, real quick, 
how Golden State fares when you get to Denver because you and I both know we both lived there for some time. When you get in that altitude, it does change things. So will Golden State still have that same energy that they've been afforded the first two games of this season? I don't know, but but as a, as a whole, they should not have too much of a struggle with the Denver Nuggets in this series. I wouldn't think so. And, and you know, of all the sports, you know, it's it seems like basketball, like the way you're conditioned, the way you play the game. Um, and again, <laughs> I, I couldn't go do it anymore. But getting up to mile high altitude for, for the NBA doesn't seem to have as much of an impact because these guys are so well conditioned, particularly by the time they get to this point of the season. We were talking also before we started re- uh, recording this, the Mavericks and the Jazz, they're at 1-1. Uh, but the Mavericks, man, you know, they, they win a game without Luka. And, you know, the Jazz, they were the number two seed in the West a year ago. They fall all the way to five this year. If they wash out this year, you know, you, you've got to think some 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 changes may be coming in Salt Lake City. Mike, I don't understand the Utah Jazz with a guy like a Rudy Gobert who's been a multiple-time defensive player of the year. They play no defense. And it's it's – it's mind-boggling how they allow a Jalen Bronson, of all people from Villanova, to go out there and give him 40, Mike. He gave him 41 in their second game, and they were able to steal a game without Luka Doncic, their face of their organization, a guy that really sets up everything for them from an offensive standpoint, and you still can't stop this team when they don't have their 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 main cog. I, it. it if I'm if I'm a player on this team, like I'm really confused because I just don't understand how they're able to underachieve year in and year out. And and if if I'm Mitchell, I there's if I'm Spider Mitchell, I I don't want any parts of this. If if we lose this first round series against a team that's going to be predominantly without Luka Doncic, then I, you you've got to do something different. He he's got to figure out a way to get himself out of Utah because. It's just not working with, with Snyder yeah. as the head coach, I, and and I feel bad for him because they've got a lot of talent uh, to 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 make more noise. But if I'm Donovan Mitchell, I, I got to be out of there. Meanwhile, you switch over to the East, and particularly I, 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 this weekend, I was watching the Celtics and the Nets, and the Bucks and the Bulls, oh. and it had a Ooh. feel like Eastern Conference basketball from 25 or 30 years ago. You know, physical, every shot was getting contested, not always pretty. Uh, Milwaukee and Chicago, uh, you know, they kept the scores under 100. Now credit, I guess, to, to Boston and Brooklyn. They put some points up, but it still had that old-school Eastern Conference basket, postseason basketball feel to it uh, this weekend. Yeah, Mike, I, I, I look at the, the, the Brooklyn-Boston series. That should be a conference finals matchup. There is no way that that should be a first round matchup. I mean, these guys are actually going at it tooth and nail. And and I'm fascinated. I can't wait to see the next game because I know with Kevin Durant, he's not going to look as bad. Of course, with Kyrie, controversy always seems to follow him, but he seems to always be the common denominator with that controversy. So I think he needs to kind of look in the mirror, if you will, and and, kind of assess why this, this drama seem to always follow him. But Jason yeah. Tatum. What, what can we say about Jason Tatum? He is coming out as a bona fide superstar, and he's putting everybody on notice. The way he's taking on the challenge, man up against Kevin Durant, that was awesome to watch. But we both know 
you're not going to keep Kevin Durant to 23 points very often. I, I see Kevin Durant coming back and having a, a big game, game two, and the rest of the series. I don't know if it'll matter this postseason, but apparently Ben Simmons has been cleared for contact. He apparently did some workouts, some four-on-four worker workouts with teammates. So we'll see, uh, you know, but again, even if he is able to come back, you know, what can he give them? And, and does he disrupt chemistry at this point? Mike, I think he gives them a defensive presence, something that I think is going to be the Achilles heel of the Brooklyn Nets with all apologies to Kevin Durant from a few years ago. I just think when you have a guy that hasn't played since last June, you try to insert him into the lineup. The thing that is going to work in his favor is that he's not a ball dominant scorer. He's a guy that does all the other intangibles. He plays great defense. He's a facilitator. He can get Kyrie or Kevin Durant the ball where they want it in their sweet spots. And he's willing to take on that big time defensive challenge. So he could be integrated even faster, but I just think with the wind and, and his endurance level, I, I just don't see him coming back and making that big of an impact. Plus, you're not going to risk him with a back injury if he is yeah. truly injured. You're not going to give him big minutes in his first time back in, in almost you know, 10 months. The other the other reason you know it's the postseason, uh, great, I think, a great story. Kyrie Irving fined $50,000 for flipping off the fans in Boston and a as a Pistons fan, I'm 100% supportive of flipping off the fans in Boston, regardless of who does it. But he, he, was, he was saying all the things that he was being called uh, while he was playing. Then he follows it up with, we're the ones expected to be docile and humble, take a humble approach. F that. It's the playoff. This is what it is. So he's, he's paying the $50,000 fine, and it sounds like he's happy doing it. Mike, as a former athlete, you have to expect that on the road. You're not going to get the the – the benefit of the doubt when you go into enemy territory. As he said, it is the playoffs, so they're going to do everything that they can. We saw this a lot in Utah in years past. A lot of players complained about everything that was said to them and, and, and things that were, you know, the insults that were hurled in their direction. Look, you got a job to do. I think the thing that Kyrie did, which he should focus on more, is he dropped 39 while they were booing him. So I, I think if you're the Boston Celtics – you're telling their fans, like, listen, stop provoking this guy. This guy's giving us the business, especially in the fourth quarter. We don't need this guy to be charged up because he seems to thrive off of this type of energy. So if, if Kyrie would just focus in on the basketball aspect of it as opposed to him saying, hey, I'll be here as long as you have me, because he did say that once upon a time as a member of the Boston Celtics, and then uh, yeah. within about four months he was out of there. So they have a reason to have vitriol but this is par for the course. You can't be a soft superstar and think that you're going to uh, take your team to the next level when you're so sensitive and have rabbit ears and listening to everything that everybody has to say. That's awesome, rabbit ears. I haven't heard that back since I was working college baseball games. They would yell at the umpire, tuck them in, <laughs> rabbit. Put your ears away, rabbit. Did you ever have, did you ever have a teammate, though, that engaged in that way with the fans that – that uh, maybe you had to, you know, get in the middle of, pull them back a little bit? Uh, any teammates like that while you were playing? Uh, well, I, there, there was always Doc. You know, Doc was a guy that he was he was a, a very combustible personality. I love Darnell. He's a great teammate. Uh, but, he, you know, he would engage with the fans on the sidelines from time to time. And there were other guys. But Doc was the one that I remember because he was the most uh, boisterous, if you will. He would even put signs up you know, on, on the sidelines and, and – 
that would have, you know, retorts to what the fans were saying to him. So uh, I think at some point you, you have to know that it's coming. And there are places where you know it's going to be a little bit worse than others. Boston and, and, and uh, you know, what they've done over the years, you know, I, I think about the New England Patriots as well. That area has always had nasty fans. Seattle, yeah. from a Cardinal standpoint, they always had very nasty fans towards us. But you, you know what it is before you walk in. So you, you, you have a thick skin, you, 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 you tune that out, and you lock in on what you have to do, which is beating the team that's on the field, not the people in the stands that have no bearing on the outcome of the game. You played at Boston College while you were at Notre Dame, didn't you? Played at Boston College. I was also in the division with the, the Patriots when we were in the old AFC East when I was with the, the Indianapolis Colts. And so have a lot of familiarity with the Boston area. Very nasty fans. They love their home teams. Uh, and they will do anything to give them a leg up and give them an opportunity to win the game. And with the recent really? success that they've had in the 2000s, uh, they are just a nasty group. And, and you, you really don't want to get into a war of words because uh, you could see seven-year-old girls out there giving <laughs> you the business. That, that, that's how they get down in Boston. You know, they, they, they're born into it and they embrace full-fledged and, and you, you just have to know that but, but rise above and, and, and stay locked in on, on what you have to do in order to help your team. So even BC fans, Chestnut Hill, like that whole, that whole crowd is ugly? Oh, Mike, they used to throw batteries at us when I was – see, they hated us at Notre Dame because we were the other private Catholic school. And so they always kind of looked at us as, as the big brother, and, and they hated being that, that, that little brother uh, moniker. So they, they always had a, a complex and, and uh, an axe to grind, if you will, for Notre Dame, not like other schools didn't, but especially Boston College. They hated us. And whenever we went there, the reception was never warm and fuzzy, Mike. It was always uh, keep your helmet on and really try not to say a whole lot to those fans because uh, you're not going to win that battle. And uh, when they've got batteries and all kinds of things already in place to, to try to take you out, you, you have to know that, you know, hopefully the younger guys would, would learn and take heed from a, a veteran and uh, act accordingly. Meanwhile, before we, uh, before we pivot off of the NBA, Marcus Smart is your NBA Defensive Player of the Year. And as far as you're concerned, the disrespect continues for the Phoenix Suns. Mike, I just don't – I don't understand how you have the best record in the NBA by a mile, and you cannot seem to garner any postseason awards. I'm not saying that Marcus Smart is not a deserving candidate for defensive player of the year because he is. He plays great defense, and he's been a, a key figure in the number one overall defense in the NBA, which is what the Boston Celtics were. So it's not as if that's a, a horrible choice. But you got to look at Mikael Bridges and what he's done and what they asked him to do night in and night out, guarding the, the best perimeter player. I just felt like with his resume and what he was able to accomplish this year, I thought he was deserving of the award. But you, you can't be too upset at a Marcus Smart because, again, they were the number one overall defense in the NBA, and he was a big part of it. I mean, the guy did any and everything he could in order to help his team on the defensive side and, and he would take on the biggest challenge that they had. And he's the second guard since Gary Payton back in the day to win 
defensive player of the year as a as a guard. So uh, I thought that was a cool moment that 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 Gary Payton went out there and 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 presented him the award and and you know of course his teammates doused him with water. That was that was that was a pretty cool moment I got to say. But big shout out to Mikael Bridges and and the performance that he put on this year. There you go. All right. On the other side, we get into some NFL news and notes. It's mid-April, but uh, there's always something to talk about in the National Football League. That's coming up next on Train and Gross. Train and Gross. Give us a follow on Twitter at Train and Gross. Richard Barry, Mike Gross, Sean Crespin. And uh, as we always do, talk about the NFL. Uh, a couple weeks away from the draft, but contracts, contracts, contracts all over the place. And, you know, we'll get to the quarterback situation here with the local football team in a minute. But I thought it was interesting because I think you're seeing some similar stories with the wide receiver position uh, in the National Football League that you are with the quarterback, where there's an arms race. There's an arms race going on, ridiculous amounts of money being given to wide receivers. And if you're a wide receiver who's been productive, but maybe you're still on the first contract, maybe the tail end of that first contract, you're of the mind, you're like, hey, look what's happening around the league. Uh, look what Tariq Hill's getting. Look what Devontae Adams getting. Look at where the bar is being set for wide receiver contracts. And if I'm Debo Samuels, I'm looking at the 49ers and saying, you seriously going to pay me less than $2 million a year for everything I did for you last year? I need a new deal, and I need a deal right now. So, Mike, there, there's two ways to go with this. And, and I think for a lot of those guys that aren't named Tyreek Hill or Devontae Adams, they really need to check themselves and realize where they are in the pecking order of, of great wide receivers in the NFL currently. If, you, if you're not Tyreek Hill or Devontae Adams, you're not supposed to make what they make. Yes, they've set the market. And, yes, there's going to be other guys that are like, oh, I should be in the ballpark of that. But when you start looking at the – the overall salary cap of your team, that there's mm-hmm. not going to be a lot of those receivers taking up that much salary cap, uh, you know, as far as that one position when there's needs at other positions, if we're really talking about seriously making a Super Bowl run. I think the, the Raiders do have realistic aspirations. I think the Miami Dolphins are trying to reestablish their image and, and their credibility in the NFL, and that's why they were – uh, willing to trade for Tyreek Hill and, and give him that big deal. Not because they are, are in line to win a Super Bowl, but I think that was more of a, he's from Miami, He's it's a, it's a PR move, and yet, you know, it shows that we are serious about football here in South Florida. But if you're a Debo Samuel, yes, you have a legitimate beef because what you are to the San Francisco 49ers you may be just as valuable to them as a Tyreek Hill will be to the Miami Dolphins. But to think that he's going to get that kind of money, I just don't think so. So, yes, the market has been set for wide receivers and big-time wide receivers, but I think the other receivers, not named Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams, need to realize there are levels to this, and you're not on their level just yet. So if if I'm not at that level, can I be at the Christian Kirk level and get $18 million a year if I'm Debo Samuels? Oh, I think if you're Debo Samuels, you have a legitimate beef. I don't think there's anybody around the NFL, Mike, that's going to uh, uh, put up much, much of a fuss and, and say Debo is out of line. Yeah, he is. For what he does for that for that organization, 
yes, they definitely need to step up and, and make sure they take care of Debo Samuels because he is a big part of that offense. And without him, they most certainly did not get to an NFC championship game last year and are considered uh, a, a top team in the NFC going forward. So, yes, his value to the San Francisco 49ers is definitely worth more than uh, under $2 million a year. No, I, I totally get it. And, and like I said at the outset, I think this is the fascinating part of it for somebody, you know, like myself, watches it as a casual fan to see, okay, like, you know who the good players are, but underneath that, you've got a hard number that these teams need to hit. And, and you made that point, you know, talking about what are the other needs of the respective teams when you have a number right now that's set at $208.2 million. So you've got to hit it. And, you know, you can't give all these players all this, you know, all the, it'd be nice if there was no salary cap, then you could take care of everybody. But, but there, there is, Mike, and you've got to live. No, go ahead. I, I'm sorry, Mike, I cut you off. Go ahead and finish, brother. No, I was done. I was done. You got to, all I was saying is you got to live in the salary cap that, that you've got and you've got to make decisions. Yeah. And I, and I think you see the same thing too with the quarterback market. Of course, everybody's going to look at Deshaun Watson and man, he got two hundred and thirty million fully guaranteed. So, what do you think the other quarterbacks that 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 liken themselves to be on the same level as the Deshaun Watson guys that have actually played in the last year and and had some success? They're going to be looking for not only that two thirty, but they're going to be looking at that two thirty fully guaranteed. So, I think now you're going to see a lot of quarterbacks, and even here locally, we're going to see that from Kyler Murray. He's going to be looking for that maybe not two thirty million. But he's going to be looking for that fully guaranteed contract. And I think if you are a Kyler Murray or even a Lamar Jackson, who's even more accomplished than Deshaun Watson thus far in his career, I think he's sitting so pretty right now, Mike. Everybody keeps saying he needs to get a deal done. He needs to get a deal done. But I think he's just kind of looking back and just say, hey, uh, we saw Deshaun Watson get 230. Anybody else want to up this ante before I, I put my name in the mix and, and uh, I go and ask for my money? Because if you're not – Aaron Rodgers, or if you're not Tom Brady, if you're Lamar Jackson, your name needs to be in the top five as far as paid quarterbacks because your resume says that you demand that sort of money. And Baltimore understands that as well. So there was no real rush for him to go and and, and try to get a deal done, especially before Deshaun Watson stunned everybody with, with, with that mega deal. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, Sean – when, before we started recording this segment, made an outstanding point. You got the money part of it, but as you have told us so many times, it's not what you are reported to have made. In other words, Bertrand Berry signs a $70 million contract. It's how much of that contract you actually get paid on and how much of it is guaranteed money. And I think where the Browns kind of blew up the, the, the model for the league is fully guaranteeing the entire entire 100 percent of that contract mm, 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 mm. and they were smart enough to backload it knowing that there was going to be some sort of of uh, uh, you know discipline for deshaun yeah. watson coming up in this upcoming season so he's not going to miss a lot of that money so they really wanted deshaun watson they've shown that they really wanted him and and they were very very aggressive in, in in going and pursuing him because not only did they get the big number out there as you said mike and not only did they fully guarantee it but they also structured it to where they assured him that he was going to get all of it by backloading it and not putting a lot of it in his first year 
so that whatever penalty he incurs, he's not missing out on any of that new money. I, I just, to me, that's that's saying you're our guy. We wanted you from day one, and now we're willing right. to to make every concession to make sure that you're happy and comfortable leading our our organization into the foreseeable future. Would have loved to have been a fly on the wall around the the NFL with GMs that have to deal. Let's say the Ravens. Once they saw all the details of that contract in Cleveland, you know, what the front office in Baltimore was thinking about, knowing what they had to do. Mike, think about Lamar Jackson, what he was thinking. I mean, he had to be like, oh, oh, that's what you're paying Deshaun Watson? Oh, 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 y'all about to cut that check so fat, baby. I mean, it's, I'm about to be paid all the money, baby. So, you know, he has to be cutting the rug and he don't have to share it with an agent that it's, no. it's good to be Lamar Jackson right now. Yeah. And, and again, how much of this is guaranteed? If the number's less than a hundred, we we're not good. We're not good. No, if you're Lamar Jackson, if we're less than 200 fully guaranteed, we're not good because the guy that I've had more, I've had, I got a better resume than the in Deshaun Watson. He just got 230 fully guaranteed. So uh, we we can start right there, and 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 that that'll be the baseline. If you want to go so, higher than that, hey, be my guest. I'm not gonna be mad at you. So from your experience, obviously every year the numbers get bigger, but from your experience, um, how, how how much of the deal was guaranteed when you signed your contracts? You know, when you hear that Cleveland has guaranteed 100 percent of this contract, that really does deviate from what contracts typically look like in the National Football League. So. What do, what do you when, when when I say Bertrand Berry signed a hundred million dollar contract, it wasn't a hundred. You didn't get a hundred million necessarily. What was guaranteed in those deals on a say on a percentage basis? So, Mike, you really wanted to cut it in half. Basically, you basically say, OK, we're going to spread this out depending on how many years. If you got a hundred when I was playing to get that kind of money, you were probably going to have to do a six or seven year deal. You weren't going to yeah. get a, a nice, even five-year, $20 million a year, but you were going to get that money in signing bonus. You were going to have that spread out over the length of the deal where you get so much of the signing bonus in the first year, second year, third year, so on and so forth, so that the team salary cap wasn't taken up so much by your salary, by your, your, you know, your, your, your signing bonus. So I think mm-hmm. for the guys nowadays, it, it really doesn't matter if it's all fully guaranteed. It doesn't matter when you get it. I mean, you can have it deferred like a Bobby Bonilla back in the day and, and you could be getting paid till 2070. You know what I mean? It, 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 it doesn't really matter as long as it says guaranteed, you're getting yeah. every cent of that. Now you, you want to negotiate as much of the money and signing bonus as you can. And generally you, you get about 30 to 40% of the, of the deal in signing bonus and then you get the most of it uh, basically through salary and, and all that's broken up over years time. And so uh, that that structure is still pretty much intact, but certain positions demand that uh, those numbers be be altered a little bit and, and be finessed a little bit. And, and we're seeing that with the quarterbacks right now and we're seeing it with the wide receivers. Kyler Murray, um, and this is kind of an oxymoron, I guess, Kyler Murray is going to skip voluntary workouts. He doesn't have to be here. So I guess it's news given the contracts, you know, but there you go. It's the story that keeps on giving. Mike, that, that, that's, that's one of those passive aggressive moves that 
I, everybody kind of sees it coming. Like you're not really uh, making news when you do something like that. We, we know who Kyler Murray is here in the Valley. We know his temperament. We know what his relationship is with the organization to a certain degree. And uh, he's already acted out, if you will, in scrubbing his whole account of anything that was Cardinal related. It had to be talked off of that ledge once before. And so I think that Deshaun Watson and, 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 uh, the Tyreek Hill money, I think all of those things maybe uh, rubbed him the wrong way again. And he started looking at this deal like, wait a minute, I, I, I got as much as these guys. Why aren't I in that conversation? And, and so uh, they probably had it to a point where everything was cool. But then when he started seeing those, those numbers go up, you know, like, like, uh, you know, like, like monopoly money, then he's like, yeah. Oh no, we, we, we got a problem yet again. So, uh, until that deal is signed, I think you're going to continue to have a few headaches, if you will, with Kyler Murray, and, and that's just part of the deal. He sees the, the market for quarterbacks, and he wants to get in on that action. Well, and you look at it, and I'm, I threw out the number, right? The two, $208.2 million is the number that every team has to work with this year. And there's some big numbers in front of Kyler Murray when you look at this Cardinals roster, and you can debate the merits of of some of those. You know, DJ Humphreys is close to – you talk about that $20 million a year. You know, DJ's up there. You got DeAndre Hopkins. And DeAndre Hopkins, you can make the case uh, when he went out, you saw a drop in Kyler Murray's performance once he lost his favorite target. You got, you know, Buda Baker, who's the face of the defense. And some might argue, you know, with the way he's conducted himself – you know, he, you could make a strong case, of, you know, besides Kyler, he's the face of the franchise. Um, and, of course, J.J. Watt, Rodney Hudson. So there's guys in front of him uh, that, are, that are eating up big chunks of it. So a uh, lot, of, lot of decisions to be made, a lot of numbers to be crunched, and, and maybe some contracts to be reworked by the Cardinals front office if they're going to get it done between now and the start of training camp. See, Mike, this is the, this is the, the backside of – when you're first eligible to get a new deal you know this is after he's played the majority of his rookie deal and now he's eligible for a new deal he feels like because he's been to two pro bowls he's had uh he was offensive rookie of the year he feels that hey this is the next step in my in my evolution i'm going to get paid i'm on i want to get this big second contract as soon as i possibly can and get that done so then once i come back for yet another deal a few years down the road then i'll be set to where i really want to be in and i think a lot of gms are are going to be looking at that with the upcoming draft in mind thinking okay you 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 start drafting these guys pretty high and and they they turn out to really hit and and hit their marks uh, you're going to have real problems down the road in a few years. You better have a, a, a roster that can win right now while they're on their rookie deals because once they want to re-up, they're not re-upping for the, the minimum. They're re-upping to try to get close to the to the highest guy as possible. And, and, and you're going to see a lot of teams have to make real business decisions based on those numbers that these quarterbacks and receivers are demanding. One thing I appreciate you've always shared with us when we talk about the situation when when players are going through this in the locker room, you got the blinders on. You don't care. It's every man for himself, individual contractors with the team. But in the back of your mind, when you got a young guy 
um, you know, trying to get the deal and his agent doing, you know, some of the talking that he's doing. Like if I'm if I'm Rodney Hudson and I'm sitting here listening, I'm like, man, I play. I'm 33 years old, man. I I put my time in. I earned this deal. You know, I'm getting 12 million dollars a year. I don't want to hear about it from a rookie, even if he is the quarterback. I mean, Rodney Hudson, 33 years. That's that's the long end of an NFL career. And, and you know, as I said, his, his mindset is he's earned that contract. Absolutely, Mike. And, and yeah, you never, ever count another man's money. And uh, that's that's cardinal rule number one, cardinal sin number one, is you never do that, no pun intended. But I think for most guys in that locker room, they understand the pecking order of importance. You understand that the quarterback is going to always be the most important as far as the contract is concerned. He's going to make the most money of the other 52 in the locker room. And then you've got receivers, you've got – uh, offensive tackles, you got defensive ends, and then everybody else kind of falls in line after that. So uh, th- there isn't going to be a lot of, of, of talk about it amongst the other players. Everybody understands how the, 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 the payments work and, and, and the sliding works as far as position. And, and you just try to get as much as you can and, and put yourself in position to where you can keep getting checks because while you're worried about somebody else's checks, if you're a stop, you, you're you're going to see your life change dramatically if you don't handle yep. your own business. So most guys don't really have the time to worry about what Kyler or what anybody else is, is, is trying to make as far as their salary is concerned. They're trying to hold on to their own spot and make sure nobody comes for them. Real quickly, before we get off of football, LeVar Arrington, um, he's talk show host in, in, the, in the nation's capital now. Of course, played for the Washington Redskins at the time. And we talked last week about the letter that came out that the, uh, the, the Daniel Snyder was being investigated. And LeVar Arrington, he said, I don't need a pat on the back, but I need an apology from Daniel Snyder. And that apology needs to be equally mm. as loud as the criticism as Daniel Snyder was mm. throwing on me when I played for this franchise. And LeVar Arrington, if you remember, very critical of the owner of the, of the Redskins at the time and talked about the shady business practices that he thought were going on. Uh, from his time, and you know, now he's got a platform too. You know, you you gave Mark Schlereth some some uh, shout out for for you getting into into media. Lavar Arrington is he's got a platform, and and he's shouting it from the rooftops back there about how bad things were with the Redskins. And oh, by the way, I was right. Mike, this is always going to be one of those worst nightmare for an organization when a former player, a guy of of LeVar Arrington's, uh, you know, of his status when he's eight, when he's willing to go out there and, and spill the tea, if you will, and, and kind of open the door as to what was going on behind the scenes, people are going to want to listen. They're going to want to know information is what rules the day. And nobody knew better than LeVar Harrington. And, and I, I'm sure there are some things he probably won't say uh, to protect some of his friends, but, uh, as you said, Mike, the relationship with him and the owner, Daniel Snyder, was not great. So he doesn't feel any need to protect him and his his image at all. So uh, you just wonder how far is he willing to go as far as giving up critical information that that when you start considering the source is very, very credible. You know, LeVar Arrington knows what he's talking about when he's speaking on these situations because he was there, he was in the mix and he was one of those important players that, uh, you know, they wanted to make sure that he was kept in the loop on a lot of the things that were going on. And so uh, not only did he have that access, 
he saw with his own two eyes. He, he knew what was going on. So uh, you have to pay attention to a LeVar Arrington because he is as credible a source as you will ever find in any part of the NFL because he's a, he was a player that was a pro bowler, a guy that was important. And when he talks, it's like E.F. Hutton. People are going to listen. And he's sitting right out the side of the stadium, man. He's in the, he's in the market still. He never left. And you, you almost got the sense that when he said he knew this day was coming, you know, sooner or later, it was going to happen. All right. That ends it. Draft coming Mike, up next Mike, week. Real, well, Mike, real, real, real quick, Mike, when you think about LeVar Arrington, man, he had the worst luck when you start talking about organizations and programs. I mean, remember, he was part of Penn State's program when you had Jerry Sandusky and, and yeah. th- there's a special coming out about Joe Paterno here in the next couple of days. And uh, he was a All-American linebacker at Penn State. And then, you know, you go from there to being part of the, 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 the Washington Commanders organization and, and uh, all the things that were going on. He, he had to think to himself, man, I can't catch a break everywhere I go. You know, there's always some sort of scandal going on behind the scenes. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, they didn't have the, the championships that you would like to, to, to go along with the drama that he had to put up with. Uh, absolutely. And you, you talk about that, the, the, the next shoe to drop, if you will, from Penn State. That came out on ESPN. There was a, another one of the long-form stories that they do, man. The, the next one, I mean, I don't think it can be as bad as Sandusky, but it is equally as bad, if not – and it predates Sandusky, meaning if they would have dealt with this situation there, maybe Sandusky never would have happened. Like, oh, man, like if I'm a if I'm a Penn yeah, it's State bad, fan, Mike. I'm it's bad, really bad, really bad. It's bad. All right. It's bad. We'll, we'll, put a, we'll put a wrap on the football talk coming up next. More news and notes on Train and Gross. Stick with us. Train and Gross. Draft coming up on April the 28th for the National Football League, and it's in Las Vegas. And the actual draft itself turning into into a show. Sean was telling us during the break, it's in front of the Bellagio, floating stage in front of yeah. the fountains. Come on. Yeah, this is when they had all this planned last year, too. It got canceled because of, right. of COVID. So the NFL said, hey, you know, we'll still give you a solid. We'll do you a solid. Bring it back to Vegas uh, next year. So this is kind of the make good. From last year, but yeah, it's going to be. A, they're going to have a floating stage. Uh, it's going to, every year. I feel like since they decided to move this thing around and out of New York City, that it's they're trying to one up. Every year, it gets bigger and bigger. From Philly to Tennessee to Vegas, do you guys are you into the whole moving draft? I, I don't think it needs to be in one place. I think you want to you want to appease all the fan bases. You want them all to feel important because. When you start isolating it to a few places, the other fan bases start to feel a little inferior complex where, <laughs> well, we aren't good enough for you guys to come and, and hang with us for a few days. I mean, what's, what's going on? So I, I, I like the idea of it floating and, and, and certain cities getting shine at, at different points, you know, in different years. So I, I don't really have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it either. And I think if you accept the fact that the NFL is a product, right? I mean, and, and to B-Train's point, move it around. You know, teams like it. They sell it up. And the NFL is like, hey, you know, look how great they did last year in – where was it before COVID? Chicago or something like Tennessee, that? Tennessee, I think. It Tennessee. Was, yeah, there was Philly, Chicago, Tennessee. Nashville. They were all in there. Nashville, yeah. 
Yeah. Now, you know, Vegas, you know, anybody going to top Vegas for putting on a show? Um, you know, why not move it around? I guess it'll be in LA before too long in that, in that stadium. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, guess what? Two weeks after the draft's done, they're going to make a big deal out of announcing the schedules because that's yeah. what the NFL does. The problem with uh, moving around like this, though, is you end up with years like this year where you're hoping that the home team and their fans show out, right? But now you got the home team that doesn't have a pick until the end of day two. <laughs> so they're not, you know what I mean? The home team, not even involved in their own backyard as they're, as they're hosting the draft this year until the end of Friday night. Well, that's the but thing we're about, still Las talking Vegas. about Vegas. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, and, and you look at it when they when when they put the Raiders there, and before that, they gave them an expansion franchise in the National Hockey League. And you know, they sell out both buildings, and they don't necessarily do it on the strength of people who reside in Los Angeles, right? So, um, Marco D'Angelo, a friend of ours who used to do our radio show, did my Saturday show with me for a long time. He's got season t- tickets to the Golden Knights, and he said, you know, the people next to him change every game. Every game they change because they're coming in from out of town and their tickets that they get from a hotel. So that's the way Vegas rolls. And I think just because you are in Vegas, it doesn't mean that fans that are Raiders fans are going to be the ones that they're counting on because everybody goes to Vegas at mm-hmm. some point. It's not it's not one of those places where they're only going for specific events. You're going to go to Vegas all year round because it has that type of attraction to it and, and, and people are going to be there. So I don't think they have any concerns at all about the location as far as it being in Vegas. Now, the one thing I'll say for the players is in years past, you need to be careful about the guys that actually go to the draft because you don't want to be that next Aaron Rodgers or Leland McElroy back in the day when he was uh, in the mm. green room all the way to the second round. So, you know, I think the guys that are going now, I think they've done a pretty good job of making sure that the guys that are invited are are guys that are going to go fairly early in the draft and you don't have those embarrassing moments where a player is embarrassed to to have to sit there and wait for hours until his name is called. And to that point, you look at mock drafts, um, you look at the lack of quarterback name quarterbacks in this upcoming draft some have one some have two if you're stretching maybe three quarterbacks but you're talking about a guy like kenny pickett as the top pick the pit quarterback who yep. is maybe yep. a top 10 pick right um and then after that it gets dicey in terms of where you're going at the quarterback position and i think a lot of times the build-up to a draft uh is is what what really puts the attention on it and quarterbacks love them or hate them they drive that attention uh, around the draft. But this year, I mean, the next one off the board, I guess, is the kid from Liberty. And we talked a lot about North Dakota State quarterbacks the last couple of years. And Malik Willis, uh, apparently very talented, but nobody ever saw him play. He played at Liberty. Um, and he made well, it as a first did, rounder. Yeah. Well, remember, Mike, he did transfer from Auburn. He, he, he didn't, it didn't yeah. work out in Auburn. And so he went to Liberty. And, you know, he got a lot of attention for what he did at the combine with giving the, the homeless lady all of the outfits and stuff like that when nobody was watching. And uh, that was a great story. But, Mike, I have a, 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 a angle that I want to address when you start talking about the NFL right now. I think the NFL is as healthy as it's been with franchise-type quarterbacks. 
So I don't think that there's necessarily a need to have that franchise type quarterback in this year's draft because most teams don't really need a quarterback that desperately. Yes, there's going to always be a, a need for a guy that's quality and, and a, a guy that can come in and, and really fill out your roster and maybe, uh, you know, challenge a, an older guy for that position. But if you, if you think of the AFC and the NFC, there are a lot of young, talented signal callers in the NFL right now. And th- there, there's not a lot of, of need in my opinion, for that that next uh, Andrew Luck or or a Peyton Manning or uh, you know a can't miss type of guy because I think a lot of the teams, if they're honest, they feel really good about their quarterback situations. Either they have that franchise type guy, or they have a guy that they're grooming right now who's been selected in recent years that they're hoping to to take that next step and and be that face of the franchise. No, and that's a fair point. And, you know, you look at that and, you know, to the point that you made earlier about Kyler and the contract situation, you know, if you draft a guy lower, it takes some of that pressure off of that decision after the fact, right? So maybe you find a win-win for a team that still needs it, like the Steelers or some of those other teams out there that may be in the market for a quarterback. Um, So we'll see. The other thing, um, bringing because it's all local, right? Um, and I love this time of year, and we've talked a lot about him on this podcast, Steve Kime. You go back and look at his history of picking number one, um, and it hasn't always been great. Jonathan Cooper, <laughs> Dayoon mm. Buchanan, DJ Humphreys, mm. Robert Kimdichie, Hassan Reddick, Josh Rosen, mm. and the last couple. Some of those guys, you know, you draft and you roll the dice. Uh, I'm thinking of Dayoon Buchanan, maybe Hassan Reddick. You know, you draft guys high that put so much pressure on them, and then you you don't really have a spot, or you try to play them out of position. Um, you can't miss on first round draft picks. You can't. And you know, I, I don't know what it is um, with Steve Kime, but he's he's been he's a cat because he's got nine lives with the way he's he's uh, he's conducted some of these drafts over the course of his tenure. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, I just think uh, here in recent history, I just I don't think that there's a need for a first round pick at linebacker. I'll just say that and leave that right there. So when we start talking about specific needs for this particular team in the Arizona Cardinals, I I do believe you're going to have to go and find a receiver. You're going to have to find a guy that can go opposite of DeAndre Hopkins. Yes, they were able to 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 sign some players, some guys out there, uh, but when I start thinking about that guy that can really stretch the field and, and really be that compliment to DeAndre Hopkins, I don't know if that's currently on the roster. You, you, you let Christian Kirk go. And I mean, I don't know if he was going to be that guy anyway, because I thought Rondell Moore had already supplanted him at that slot position, but AJ green, I, I mean, yes, he's, he's, he's still a name, but, is he really that guy that can still demand that double team, if you will, on the outside or, or opposite of DeAndre Hopkins? I don't believe so. So you, you've got to go and find somebody that can go and, 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 and compliment DeAndre Hopkins. Also, I believe with, with the departure of a Chandler Jones, you got to go find that edge rusher. It is loaded. The, this year's draft is loaded with edge rushers. 
There are a plethora of them to choose from. Go and get one and feel good about it for the next five to 10 years. But make sure you do your due diligence and make sure this guy can bend at the hips and that he mm-hmm. has that ability to to get to the quarterback and win one-on-one matchups because uh, just getting a big, fast, strong guy is not what it takes in order to be an effective edge rusher in today's NFL. Totally agree with you. And, and again, I, you know, I'm, I'm far from a draft expert, but if you read what they're saying, again, it's light on quarterbacks in the first round. And unlike the last couple of years, the wide receiver class, not nearly as deep, but the type of first round talent that's out there might still be available. Drake Landon from USC when the Cardinals still pick in the latter half. And to your point, it is absolutely loaded with defensive talent, but you got to make the right choice. You got to get a guy that can come in and can play right away because you made you made the great point. You don't have Chandler Jones anymore, and you've got J.J. Watt who's up there in years. You need a guy that can come out and hit the field day one and stay healthy. I, I assume that's the bend at the hips. Oh, no question. My quality, you need quality and you need depth. You need guys that can do it, and you need more of them because it's tough to ask two guys to go and rush the quarterback 30 times a game and, and be successful. It's, at some point, you got to give yourself a little bit of a break and, and let some other guys be able to go in and, and, and maintain that standard uh, of effectiveness on the field. So uh, they, they've got their work cut out, but they can get it done if they are willing to put in the work and do their due diligence about these individual players. NFL Draft coming up on April 28th. And one other thing, and I should have brought this up in our last segment, but I'll, I'll bring it up here now, um, talking about Steve Kime and his draft history. But the other thing that, that we didn't talk about, um, and we should have, Steve Wilkes joined the lawsuit that's pending against the NFL, mm-hmm. and he named the Arizona Cardinals for his time here. And I thought it was really interesting how he laid it out. And again, I'm not a lawyer, but if I was on a jury, I'd be saying, well, that's a good point. And that's a good point, meaning he was brought in here with no chance to win. He was brought in as a bridge guy. Uh, he, he went 3-13 and 13 in his one year, but his contention is his hands were tied. He wasn't allowed to do things the way he wanted to do it. Uh, and then, you know, the, the quarterback and, and the coach blown out after one year. But the other thing that I thought was fascinating is he goes, I, I ran this like, uh, you know, a clean, uh, clean. I was up front. Meanwhile, the GM's out there getting a DUI, getting arrested, and he gets off virtually scot-free and keeps his job, yet I get fired. Um, again, I'm not a lawyer, never went to law school, but if I'm sitting on the jury, I'm like, Steve Wilkes makes some sense here in terms of some of the things he's saying about his time with the Arizona Cardinals. Mike, I, I truly believe Steve Wilkes was, was jobbed, if you will, uh, with the Arizona Cardinals. He was not given a fair shake. He was not their first choice. I don't think he was their third choice. And the way that it all worked out, uh, they not only let go of the head coach, they let go of the quarterback the same year. They brought Josh Rosen in from UCLA, and and he was not the answer because I don't think that they had the right team in order to showcase what he could do very well. So uh, I I think he has a very strong case, and and Mm -hmm. the fact that he was very precise with it, uh, he he did not – use emotion at all i mean everything that he said was fact-based and it's hard to argue and and i think for a lot of coaches uh minority coaches in the nfl whether they're black or latino or whatever they are they're they're feeling 
the the weight of this lawsuit and and they they, they may not come out and publicly uh, support what's going on, but you know behind the, the scenes and in the back channels, they're lending their support uh, to all of these men that are stepping forward and putting their names out there. And and you know when you talk about the new additions. Two of those guys were once upon a time coaches here with the Arizona Cardinals. I mean, that's just a coincidence, you know what I mean? But uh, that just seems to be very curious, you know, the the timing of it and where these particular coaches uh, coached once upon a time. Well, when Brian Flores filed his lawsuit initially, we talked about it on the podcast and, you know, did did, I think, a pretty deep dive into it. But one thing that you said stuck with me through all of that and you said that you hope that Brian Flores isn't out there on an island by himself, that he gets some support. Uh, and, and I think the fact that Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton made a decision to join this lawsuit and to attach their names to it, I think is, is adding credence to what Brian Flores is saying. And it, 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 makes it, it takes away the argument that this is just one individual who maybe has a, an axe to grind or whatever people will say naturally when they talk about people to file a lawsuit that they disagree with. But the fact that he is now joined by Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton, uh, I think adds some credibility and takes away the argument that this is just a lone individual who's uh, who's got something to say about the NFL. Mike, whenever you can have somebody come in and say the exact same things and not have been in cahoots with each other, I, I don't think that these men are best, best buddies or, or they run in a the same circles to a certain degree, but the fact that they're saying a lot of the same things as far as their experience when it comes to uh, uh, hires and, and potential hires, yeah, they, the, the fact that they're basically backing up what each other is saying, it, it shows that all these guys can't be wrong. And I think for for Coach Flores, he should feel that, that support from his brethren out there in the NFL and, and – I mean, to me, I look at Eric Bieniemy. He could very easily throw his name in there as well. A guy that has been an offensive coordinator for a very successful team in the Kansas City Chiefs, and yet still can't find an interview for a job. Yeah. I, you wonder what what's going on. Why why can't a guy like that? When there have been other guys, even with the Kansas City Chiefs, hello Matt Nagy, who were offensive coordinators once upon a time, and they were you know quickly ascended to a head coaching yeah. job. So it, it just makes you wonder uh, what's going on. And, and, and they, they, like a lot of us, just want answers as to, as to, to why the, the, the hiring practices are the way that they are. Their lawsuit was filed in federal court in Manhattan, literally right outside the front doors of the offices of the National Football League. And like a lot of lawsuits, this will take its uh, time winding through the process. But it'll be very interesting to see when it gets to the point of discovery, once they start putting people in the hot seat to give uh, not before, not during a trial, but before when they're asking the hard questions and building the case. uh, If the if the league officials fold the way they did when the city of St. Louis sued the National Football League for moving the team to Los Angeles, once they got into discovery, once they wanted to see the books, once they wanted to go behind the scenes, all of a sudden, the NFL did what they had to do to make it go away. So it'll be really interesting to see if Brian Flores, Steve Wilkes, and Ray Horton are able to turn up the heat and get some of these guys to sit in the hot seat, talk in front of the video camera, 
and give some testimony that will be used in trial, um, that, that's when we'll see how hard the NFL really wants to fight this. Mike, this really comes down to comfort level of the owners and, and who they feel comfortable in front of. And until that changes, you're going to see a lot of the, the same results that we've seen in years past. If they're not comfortable with the potential coach, if they don't know anything about him or they don't share some of the same views politically as well as uh, you know just life in general, then they're not going to lean towards those men. They're, they're just going to lean towards guys that they feel comfortable with, that they have a kinship with. And somebody's going to have to be the brave soul to stand out there like the Roonies did, uh, you know, what, 15 years ago with uh, with Mike Tomlin. And, and I think they can say that that was probably the right decision, even though they had two coaches already in-house that were great candidates for that head coaching job. And so uh, all they asked for is an opportunity. And once given the opportunity, uh, then good things happen. And I think it's ironic that we're talking about this a couple of days after uh, Jackie Robinson, you know, infamously, you know, integrated uh, pro sports when he became a, a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers way back in 1947. So, um, you know, that it, it's just funny how that seems to uh, have worked its way back into the, the cop, you know, the topic of conversation. Uh, you know, just wanting to be included, the inclusion aspect of it and, and, and feeling like you're a part of it for real. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a fascinating story. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, there's a story written about Jackie Robinson that year. And the title of the story was The Loneliest Man in Sports, about how hard that mm-hmm. was for Jackie Robinson. You know, you remembered after the fact as a first and everything that you did, but when he was going through it, Mm. how hard it was for him. And um, if you see the article, it's really good. Read the loneliest man in sports, Jackie Robinson. All right. With that. So Mike, real quick, real quick, Mike, real quick with that. When you think about what Jackie Robinson went through during that year, especially that first year, think about what he had to endure the things that were said to him, not only from the visiting team, but in his own team. And then you think about Kyrie Irving today. How in the world, if you're Kyrie Irving, can you sit up there and, and say that you are a, a guy that's being targeted? You weren't targeted like Jackie Robinson was. When you're a first and, and the things that, that were the insults and, and the things that were literally hurled at him, and for him to still go out there and, and be productive like he was and and and, and be a champion, uh, you know, not just for himself, but but for many others. I mean, come on, man. You know, today's athletes have got to understand that somebody already paved the way for you in that respect. So there's no need to hide behind. Well, you know, it, it's just you just had enough. If he would have said that, then we may not see major sports the way that they are today. Fair point. Good. All right, B-Train, you know what time it is. Oh, yeah. Time for us to take our final break of the podcast on the other side, pump the brakes, and then B-Train puts on the reading glasses, and we do dad jokes. That's coming up on Train and Gross. Final segment of the podcast regular listeners know we do pump the brakes and dad jokes with that i turn it over to sean crespin 
All right, guys, I'm going to give you some statements from around the world of sports, a little bit of pop culture mixed in there as well. Well, today's pop culture also, I guess, is sports, but we'll get to that on question five. So we'll start with a few of the topics you guys actually touched on throughout the show, one of them being Kyrie Irving and the $50,000 fine that he got for how the NBA put it, the, quote, obscene gesture and language towards the fans. So I'm going to direct this one towards Gross, because B-Train answered yeah. his feelings about this in in the sports world. So pump the brakes or not, Gross. You've given the old single-finger salute to somebody in your workplace at the bank. To their face? <laughs> no, just in general, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, all the time. <laughs> All, All right. the time, <laughs> you, you, you can, I can I can send you a text now with the middle finger in it. Like the That's Apple true. has added the middle finger as an emoji on the phone. It's so true. if if they're doing yeah. that, why is it a fifty thousand dollar fine? Yeah. Yeah. So all right. So I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know if the banks were that hostile behind the scenes or not. But apparently they are. I do. I do it. On, I, yeah. I do it at the bank. I do it at podcasts. <laughs> I used to do it on the radio show. All right, B-Train, so give me your story of the most ridiculous fan. You've told me about the Texas cheerleader behind the bench before, which we've actually highlighted oh, on this hey. show. <laughs> yeah. Is there a specific fan or fan base that you wanted to go full Kyrie Irving on? Oh, Boston. In college and in the pros. They are some of the nastiest, vile people you will ever, ever meet in your life. And the thing that's so crazy about it is, is they're not always like that. I, I wouldn't think like I wouldn't think they're like that in everyday life. But for whatever reason, when they go to those sporting events and they go to those stadiums, they take on a completely different personality and they say things that they know they can only get away with in those stadiums. And so uh, my time at Boston College, my time playing against the Patriots, there were always things that were said that I think had we been on the street, they probably may have had a, a change of heart, if you will, and, and, and maybe have kept that to themselves. But because they were in a group and they probably had had a few uh, adult beverages, <laughs> they felt the freedom to say some things that they wouldn't otherwise say because it wouldn't be very smart. Is there, if you close your eyes, do you, can you, is there one that's staying, can you picture somebody? Is it that vivid to you? There's one you can just see that Boston, you know what, behind that wall? Or yeah. is it just a group? Yeah, that was one. It, it, it was always a group. It was always a group of guys and they always sat in the, the north end zone. Uh, at the old stadium, not not Gillette, but the mm -hmm. old uh, stadium out there in Boston and and uh, in New England, and uh, man, some of the things that they would say during pregame warm up because we always warmed up on that side of the field, mm -hmm. and yeah, they always had quite a few things to say, and and uh, it wasn't always men. Oh, okay, it wasn't always men. All right, no. so I'll just I'll just say that right there. <laughs> Uh, next one, Adam Schiff. Go. I'm sorry, Gross. Do you got something? I'm sorry. I, I just. I'm still. I'm still scratching my. I mean, I believe you. Don't get me wrong. But I'm still scratching my head over Boston College. Like Patriots, I get it. I'm a Pistons fan. Like I said, Celtics, I get it. But Boston College, what do they got, man? Like, I. You know. I, I, like was, I said, I'm just scratching. It was my the head. inferiority complex. It's the inferiority man. complex, Mike. They were a private Catholic school. We were a private Catholic school, but we were on a much bigger scale than they were to some degree. And, and they always felt like they were they were trying to uh, come at us and, and say, we're the big dog on the block. And 
you know, it just it just didn't work out that way. All right. Adam Schefter on ESPN, quote, San Francisco would pay Debo Samuel today, tomorrow, the next day. It's not hard to figure out what the contract would look like. This, I think, is Debo not wanting to get a deal done. The 49ers are ready. Debo's the one that's put a halt to everything for right now. That's Adam Schefter on ESPN. Pump the brakes or not, Debo Samuel in a 49ers uniform come September. Oh, I'm not pumping the brakes. He, he will be with the San Francisco 49ers. They understand that he is one of their most valuable players, probably more so than the quarterback right now. I know that they're, they still have Jimmy G on the roster. We still don't know what they're going to do uh, with Trey Lance. I mean, is he, the, is he the starter or isn't he? We're, we're, we'll find out. But I think there's no question they know how their, how their offense runs, and Debo Samuel is a huge reason why they had the success that they did uh, last year during the playoffs and in the regular season. So you think this is just Debo playing hardball similar to like Kyler. There won't be a sit out. There won't be a forced trade, any of that nature, because what Adam Schefter is saying is that San Francisco agrees with everything you just said. They're ready to cut the check and sign the put the, the pen to paper today, but it's Debo putting a halt to it. Yeah, I don't think so because I don't think the market's going to get any bigger than what Tyreek Hill signed for or what Devontae Adams signed for. So at this point, go and get what you should get. And you know where you fit in that pecking order. You know how valuable you are to the 49ers. You know you're not going to get Tyreek Hill money. You're not going to get Devontae Adams money. So find yourself somewhere uh, a little less than that, and I think you're ready to go and, and... and have a how? long, productive career. How does that make you feel? Sorry, Gross, I know you are about to jump in there too. How does that make you feel as a player when an Adam Schefter is on TV with that type of a quote-unquote breaking news statement? You know he was fed that from somebody inside that building. You know that's coming from the 49ers who's putting that out there like, hey, it's not us. It's not us. It's Debo. He won't sign the papers. not us. You know that came from inside the building. Schefter's not just going on TV making that up. So if I'm a player, if I'm Debo, and I'm already feeling some kind of way about the 49ers, that doesn't help. No, it doesn't help, but it doesn't hurt because you know that's contract negotiation and and public one-on-one. The teams have done this for years. They've tried to get public opinion on their side, and this is the latest edition of just that. They know that ultimately they have no chance without Debo Samuels. And so they're going to get that deal done, but they just want to make sure that he's trying, he's not trying to ask for either Devontae Adams money nor Tyreek Hill money. All right, gross to you now. Sorry, I cut you off twice there, but no, Debo no, in a no 49ers worries, uniform, pumping the brakes on him being in San Francisco or not? Oh, he'll be in San Francisco, but here's the thing, though. You, you look at what the 49ers have had to do to just to get to the cap number right now. I think uh, George Kittle's already had to redo his deal. Eric yeah. Armstead had to redo his deal. So the 49ers aren't aren't sitting there with a salary cap that's saying we can throw whatever kind of money we want right now at Debo. Any money they give at Debo, they're going to have to get other guys to rework deals right now. And the other thing with Schefter, man, like I, I get it. He's connected. But Schefter's also the guy that's like sharing information back and forth with NFL executives to get these stories, right? So I'm taking anything he's saying these days with a grain of salt, to be honest with you. Let's bring a local here for our third one. I'm going to give you a quote from James Conner. 
quote, no big deal. Guys who come here just are going to work. We know he's working. It's early. Everybody's just getting work in right now. It's just strength and conditioning, so it's all good. That's James Conner talking about Kyler Murray not being at voluntary workouts. Pump the brakes or not, it's not a big deal that the quarterback's not there. Go ahead, Mike. I'm going to pump the brakes only from a, 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 pu- a public PR standpoint, I guess. You know, like it or not, the quarterback is the franchise uh, face. Uh, and probably any other player that, that took a pass on voluntary workouts, like if J.J. Watt said, I'm not coming because I'm going to re- my shoulder's tired after whatever, people are going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Quarterbacks don't get that, particularly quarterbacks that have quarter- contract issues, right? So... Um, yeah, I, I get what James Conner's saying, but, you know, James Conner's got his contract. He got his. So, you know, he's he's going to do what B-Train says. You don't count another man's money. You cover for your teammates and, and you go about your business. I mean, I'm, I'm not pumping the brakes because here's the deal. What, what, what else is he going to say? Oh, we're in disarray because Kyler Murray's not here. We don't know what to do with ourselves mm-hmm. because Kyler Murray's not. That, that's nonsense. These are professionals. These are grown men. These are fathers. These are husbands. And these are men that are responsible for themselves financially and in every other way. So they're not worried about one guy there or not being there. They have a specific job to do to get themselves ready for the 2022 season. And whether Kyler Murray's there or not, they still have to do what they need to do to be a a positive contributor to the 22 version of the Arizona Cardinals is it hard to ignore though like as a guy like you you know and I don't know how voluntary these quote-unquote voluntary workouts were for you when you were you know playing as well B-Train but you know when you're are are you noticing who's there and who's not there are you are you keeping receipts like well this dude you know is that something that crosses your mind Uh, it depends on where they are if they're if it's a guy that you know is going to show up and give you what he's got you're not worried about this. It's voluntary. Yeah. That, that that's the whole that's the key phrase. Voluntary. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be there. You, you you're not going to get docked if you do not show up. So to me, this is much ado about nothing. If those if they were so important, then they would have made them mandatory. But yeah. they're not. <laughs> so it is what it is. You can you know they can they can try to shame Kyler Murray all they want, but the players in the locker room know. The ones that are there, the veterans that are there, yeah. they're angling for some sort of deal because they want to come off as a great teammate because they're looking to get paid too. So there, there's nothing to, to come of this. Absolutely ahead, nothing. Go ahead, Gross. If they were important, why'd you call them voluntary? <laughs> call them mandatory. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of one of those veterans who um, must be there because he is quoted in some articles this week from yesterday, as a matter of fact, from Monday, A.J. Green returning to the Arizona Cardinals. But let me read you this quote, and you tell me if I'm overreacting to this or not. This is a quote from A.J. Green about uh, what they need to improve on going into this year, year two with him on the roster. Quote, I think there's a lot of room to grow. I think for me, it's just communicating with Murray on what I see or what he wants me to do. I think last year that was that was a lack on my part. I didn't really communicate with him about stuff like that because I didn't want to put a lot of stuff on his plate. 
pump the brakes or not, a veteran wide receiver not being able to communicate with his quarterback is a problem. I don't know. No, we're I was not pumping the brakes. I was watching the replay of the Green Bay game and thinking maybe I should communicate better with my quarterback. But the that fact AJ that he Green. said, but the fact grosser that he says he feels he couldn't communicate that with that that way with the quarterback because he didn't want to put too much on his plate. That part to me sounds like a problem. Am I overreacting? Pump the brakes or not? Well, you're not overreacting, but I think that sometimes things can get overblown. And I will say, I don't know if A.J. Green had quite the grasp of the offense that maybe he needed to have. And he's in some way is kind of owning up to that. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that that Kyler Murray didn't have some culpability in that. I mean, every time we saw him on the sideline, there was always a, a different look. One of either disgust, disinterest, or just flat out, I don't know what to do right now. I'm just not happy. So uh, I, I think everybody can grow a little bit in that locker room. They didn't reach their goal, which was the Super Bowl. So anytime you don't reach your goal, you have work to do on yourself and as a team. And I think if everybody's willing to put in the work, then they're going to see different results come 2022. But if they're not going to do anything different, then you can't expect anything different. So I, I think all, everybody has to be professional yep. about their job and go out and do it to the best of their ability. And when I say it's a problem, I'm not blaming AJ or Kyler in particular, but the fact that a veteran wide receiver when he has moments like that Green Bay game, is saying yeah. he felt he couldn't go to that quarterback and talk to him. Like, where's the disconnect there? And I'm not blaming that on well, the quarterback or the wide receiver, but just that dynamic not being there on the sideline seems like a problem to me. No, and I get it. And look, you know, part of that quote said, that was really lacking on my part, yeah. meaning A.J. Green. And if I'm trying to send a message... I can send a message without throwing myself under the bus, right? You take that part out of it. And the other thing, thing too, when you look at A.J. Green and this offense, the way it was set up and the opportunity that he had after DeAndre went down, this was one of the worst years statistically of A.J. Green's career. Now, I understand he's getting a little bit older, but, you know, when he first got here, he was talking about a fresh start and he felt healthy and he was good to go. Statistically, A.J. Green did not deliver on his side of it. So... Again, you know, I think it's a shared responsibility um, and we'll see how it works out. I, but, you know, the fact that he's saying I need to be better, I think is a step in the right direction if you look at it that way. And our last one, Gross, I'm going to do something that I know is just going to make you smile tonight. We're going to talk a little hockey here for our for our final yeah. pump the brakes yeah. portion. OK, did you know the record for the most points by a pair of brothers in the NHL? is 2,861 points scored. Uh, Wayne Gretzky has 200 or 2,857 of those, and his brother Brent Gretzky has four. Uh, so either way, it's still the record for the duo. So pump the brakes or not, when we're talking about sports families, the greatest sports family of all time has to be the first family of football, the Mannings. Ooh. Man. That's a great question. And FYI, to those of you listening, we don't get the questions ahead of time. But there's some great yep. sports families out there. But I think, uh, like everything, when you're talking about sports, you got to start with championships, right? And even Little Brothers got 
two, if two. I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So, man, off the top of the break, off the top of my head, head I'm not pumping the brakes because I think they are. Well, and the winning for, with the with the dad, Archie, wasn't necessarily there, but he played for some terrible Aints teams, right? Saints teams. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, you know, I just was looking at the bag that they wrote on their head, you know, Aints. Um, so he didn't have the wins, but was clearly a phenomenal quarterback. So I was trying to think of other families, B-Train, and maybe you can. The first family of football, to me, the Mannings, has to be the, the greatest sports family of all time. Uh, I would disagree. I'll go with the Matthews. Uh, you look at Clay and uh, Bruce Matthews, both their sons mm-hmm. were able to have long, productive careers. Uh, you look at the Long family, Howie Long oh, and his yes. sons. You know, Chris Long, two Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dad with a Super Bowl or Ooh. a couple Super Bowls. So, you know, there, there's there's always been um, father, sons, brothers. Uh, you look at Dominique Wilkins and his brother, Gerald Wilkins, mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, back in the day. I mean, there, there's plenty of examples of, of, of great siblings that were able to do things in major sports. So uh, those are just off the top of the head. Um, I, I I know that there's at least a few more that I've forgotten in football. Yeah, but uh, uh-huh. it 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 it's there, there's a lot of competition for the Mannings as far as football royalty is concerned. Sure. What about the, what about the Williams sisters? Oh, I, I, great answer. Great answer. How about the Williams sisters? Mm-hmm. How, how about, about the Williams sisters? How, how about Cheryl Miller and her little brother? <laughs> Uh, not How wrong. about them? He's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. How about Reggie and Cheryl Miller? How about oh, that? Oh man, Mike. Just think if that, just think if there would have been a WNBA back when Cheryl Miller played. Yep. She'd own every WNBA Everything. record that there was. Yep. And she'd yep. still be out doing her brother. Yep. <laughs> he tells that, the story. I still don't think he. Go ahead, Gross. I was just going to say, that's one of those questions, like an hour from now, I'm going to be texting you guys. I'm like, yeah. and what about, and what yep. about? He, there's a great story. One of the best 30 for 30s is Reggie versus the Knicks, right? And in that story, it kind of breaks down who Reggie Miller is and everything else. And he tells the story about being in the car. He said he just dropped like 45 in high school, right? 45, something crazy, 50 points, whatever it is. He's feeling himself. He's feeling good. He gets in the car. His dad just picked him up. Cheryl's in the car. And they say, hey, he's gloating about the 50 he just dropped. And then he, say, he says, how'd you do? And she dropped like 95 or 100 in her, in her high school game he said even on my best night i could not do my sister she was she was bad man she was dead cheryl and she was the obviously a head coach here with the mighty merc here locally the mighty mercury in the early days Mm -hmm. yeah cheryl miller was awesome too yeah she did her did the broadcast yeah and i cheated Uh, on this wait i just cheated on this one okay um and and you know you you the hockey you know bring it up in the first place yeah uh the richard brothers between them won 19 stanley cups for the montreal canadians Wow. Eh, wow. Didn't count, wow. though. Canada. Didn't count. Didn't count. Original six, Sean. Original wow. six. <laughs> Doesn't count. Canada. Wow. Uh, pump, pump the brakes or not, uh, you knew Wayne Gretzky had a brother. Uh, I knew Wayne Gretzky had a brother because uh, I just knew that. Did you know he played in the NHL and scored four points? I did know that, yeah. <laughs> I'm calling yeah, BS on that. I'm pumping the brakes on you knowing that. How about that? Please don't. <laughs> All right, so time to turn it over. Uh, B-Train's been working hard uh, during the commercial breaks to write a dad joke for us that's going to land and land proper. 
tonight. So how this works, there's always a grading scale no matter what. When B-Train gives us his dad joke to wrap up the show, he's going to get one of these. If it's a quality dad joke, you're going to hear the laughter. If it's an above and beyond dad joke, you get the standing O. But there's always that chance that it just doesn't land and you get... Trying to avoid that tonight. The specs are on. He looks ready to go. B-Train, take it away. All right. Stephen King has this brother named Joe. <laughs> I'm not joking, but he is. I like it. There you go. The delivery. It was the delivery. The delivery was well. money on that one. I didn't, I didn't start laughing halfway through like I did the one time. He had a pause for those, just li- <laughs> for those just listening. He had the pause. He had the turn sideways. It was, it was nailed it. Nailed the delivery. It was, <laughs> hey, I don't usually do this because I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but yeah. in, in the spirit of Easter, <laughs> what's, the, what's the Easter bunny's favorite plant? An eggplant. An eggplant. There you go. <laughs> you take that horn and... I mean, come on now. <laughs> that was true dad joke Mike, fashion. Mike, I thought that joke was excellent. Oh, no. <laughs> it was just Easter. We can do that. Uh don't forget, give us a follow on Twitter at Training Gross, and uh, maybe we'll get the band back together in the same building. Yeah, uh, one of these days next week. Uh, we got some uh, we got some apple fritters and some Miss Tasty's pretzels and who knows what else that, that need to be addressed. You can have people start showing up at the door. You keep telling them that, Gross. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Training Gross. Well, Harlan. <laughs>